85, my goodness, 85 big episodes of UConn 360. That, of course, is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from each and every conceivable angle. Coming to you now from the three corners of Connecticut, because uh, colleague Tyler Silverio has graduated and he's gone on to good things, we hope. And thank you very much, Tyler, for all your help this past year. So now it's just, it's down to the uh, the three amigos. The original three musketeers here. That's right. Uh, I am Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, my colleagues and friends, Julie Bartuka. Good morning. Morning. And Ken Best. From the silence of the Mansfield Center Bureau this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the mowers uh, are gone. Yeah, we got lucky yesterday. I don't know what my neighbor was doing yesterday, but it, I mean, it sounded like they were drilling for oil or something. It was so loud. <laughs> Maybe after the conversation we were just having about gas. <laughs> right. There's a, apparently a shortage on, although who knows what, what situation will be happening when you listen to this. Um, <laughs> events are racing so fast. We have what I'll call a humdinger of a program for you this week. We've got a good one. Why don't we start off with some good news? Because that's always a good way to start. Yeah. Julie, you, you have some news about an accomplished student. I one more accomplishment. do. Rising senior Sage Phillips, who's a political science and human rights major in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, has been named to a second prestigious scholarship in just a month or so. She has been selected as a 2021 Udall Scholar, which is awarded on the basis of commitment to careers in the environment, tribal public policy or native healthcare, leadership potential, record of public service, and academic achievement. Sage is one of just 55 students nationally to earn this distinction and its $7,000 scholarship, and she's UConn's eighth Udall Scholar and the first to um, receive the award in the Native American Nations category. In April, Sage was named the winner of a Truman Scholarship, which is given to college students who demonstrate demonstrate outstanding leadership potential, a commitment to a career in government or the nonprofit sector, and academic excellence. So congratulations to her. That's very impressive. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and, and, you know, from accomplished current students to accomplished former students, Kent, you've got some alum news for us, right? Yeah, this past weekend, the WNBA kicked off its 25th season, if you can believe that. I remember when it was just getting started, and Rebecca Lobo was the first UConn player to go into the league. And, and UConn's success in 1995 was actually credited with helping to get the league going at the time. So ESPN, which is going to be covering all the games this year, as they have in recent years, put out some lists and some notable events. They list the top 25 WNBA players for this year. There are five UConn alums, led by Brianna Stewart of the Seattle Storm. Of course, she's the best player in the league. Followed by Nafisa Collier of the Minnesota Lynx, Diana Tarazi of the Phoenix Sun, Tina Charles of the Washington Mystics, and Sue Bird, who just turned 40 years old, of the Seattle Storm. And they are listed, as I said, as among the top 25. Stewie's number one, Nafisa number five, Diana number six, Tina 15, and Sue 18. So that's pretty impressive. And the stat from last year, 11% of the league were UConn alums more than anybody which is evidence of what, what we've got going on here. That makes me feel so proud. I love it. As far as marking the events of the 25 years, Rebecca, as I said, was the first UConn player. She, of course, got a gold medal, NCAA championship, and eventually uh, recognition for playing for the Liberty, the Comets, and the Sun. Stewie was the first four-time NCAA tournament most outstanding player to join the WNBA. Diana was the first player to reach 1,000 three-pointers, and that was a couple of years ago, but she's the first player in league history 
with 7,000 career points, 1,500 career assists, and 1,500 career rebounds. Sue is the first to play in three decades. He's been playing for a very long time. And perhaps most importantly, Renee Montgomery, who just retired, is the first former player to be part of an ownership of a team, the Atlanta Dream. Woohoo! Go UConn. Very nice. Very good stuff. The only news I have is that commencement is now uh, in the books, and this was a big effort from a lot of people. We did commencement at Rensselaer Field this year for pandemic reasons, of course, and there were eight ceremonies over the course of... It's been a busy week. It's been a busy week. So get yourself over to today.uconn.edu to catch the highlights of commencement. There's photos, there's video, there's some stories, there's a lot of good commencement coverage. This was a big ceremony, big, I should say, complex of ceremonies because of the effort involved, and also it was sort of a nice step toward normalcy, given what's happened in the last year. The pictures are fantastic. Sean Flynn and Pete, shout out. Um, And I just think everyone looks so happy walking across the stage, and it makes me feel good that we were able to do this. Yeah, we had the people from the class of 2020 back also, and uh, there was a really, Mm -hmm. there was a nice front page story in the Journal Inquirer about the class of 2020, kind of, and people in that class reflecting on being able to come back for it uh, after having missed out on it last year. So, yep, my little sister-in-law who graduated last year came back. Got to watch her on the live stream, which was cool. She just finished her first year of law school. Ariana Olson. Shout out. Nice. <laughs> she won't listen to this, but that's okay. <laughs> my husband will. He'll go. like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, all right. So it was uh, good stuff. Good stuff happening. And uh, why don't we why don't we jump into the, the main the meat of the program, huh? The main event, the main course. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Sounds our, good. Our, our you hung, have you had breakfast yet? I no, I haven't actually. That's not, might be why I'm <laughs> thinking about main courses. We have a we have a, a Brave Space story this week, Julie. Is that yes, we do. Brave Space, as you'll recall, is our platform for honesty regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion at UConn. And this week, we have a special guest interviewer. This is Courtney Chandler, the communications manager at the UConn School of Dental Medicine, who is also a special projects manager at UConn Health. And she's going to tell us all about her subject today. Today, we're having a conversation about diversity in the field of dentistry with Dr. Sarita Artiega, Associate Dean for Students at the UConn School of Dental Medicine. Dr. Artiega received her DND degree here at UConn and has been teaching and seeing patients at UConn Health since 1995. She attained a mastership from the Academy of General Dentistry and is a member of many dental associations, including the Hispanic Dental Association, where she is the past president. Dr. Artiega is a faculty advisor for the Student National Dental Association, Hispanic Student Dental Association at UConn, and takes on an active role in the community with her involvement with the Head Start Program in Meriden, the Special Olympics, the Migrant Farm Workers Clinic, and the South Park Inn Homeless Shelter in Hartford. Dr. Artiega, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is the first installment in the Brave Space series that focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion at UConn Health, and specifically at the UConn School of Dental Medicine. So Dr. Artiega, you received your dental degree here and have been teaching and seeing patients since 1995. Can you talk about what your experience was like as a woman of color in the field of dentistry, both as a student and as a new faculty member in the mid-90s? 
So things have changed significantly since I was a student. Um, as a student of color, I was the only one in my class of 38 students. And there were maybe one or two other students in the other classes of the four years while I was here. Whereas today, the percentage of the class being historically marginalized individuals has grown significantly. And I'm very proud of UConn for doing that, especially the School of Dental Medicine, because recruitment into the field is very challenging. To get minorities into the field is very, very difficult. So I'm so happy that we have grown. But as a student, it was very difficult because I was the only one in my class. It was something that I tried to be a representative. I tried to be obviously a professional because I was a, a student and trying to learn. Just being the only one was a, a little bit difficult because there wasn't a lot of support either. There weren't many faculty members of color. And so that has led me to come back to teach. Being a graduate in 1990 versus being a faculty member starting in 1995 up to today, being a faculty of color helps to be a mentor and to allow students to see somebody like themselves be in the university setting and in academics. Absolutely. And it's now 2021. And on the School of Dental Medicine's website, there's a paragraph about the school's commitment to diversity saying that the school, quote, embraces diversity and strives within its local community to mimic the multicultural and diverse character of the state of Connecticut and the nation. So how does the school honor that statement today? So as I, I mentioned, I think that we've done a really great job in increasing the numbers of students here, where nationwide there is a shortage of qualified students who apply to dental school who are from the historically marginalized communities. And so UConn does a great job in attracting them to apply and attracting them to come here as a student and enroll, and then also supporting them while they're here. That's one of my goals and objectives as a faculty member of color. But I believe other faculty see that that's an important part of our mission. And so they have also encouraged students to be here and support them. And so I, I see that that shift in increasing the numbers allows other students to look around and say, I see people of color here and they're doing well and they're comfortable and they're happy here and they're getting a great education. So I want to be here too. And I think that really has helped to increase those numbers and stand firm to that commitment of diversity, especially at the health center. Yes. And as the Associate Dean of Students, I know that you're very involved in the student interest groups that we have on campus. Can you talk a little bit more about how students get involved today to help make the school a more diverse and inclusive place? Sure. There's a lot of student groups that have interest groups in specific things, but I, ironically, we have a very inclusive policy. So in, for example, the Student National Dental Organization is under the national organization that is specifically for people of color, African-Americans. But in our group, our student group, it's a combined group with the Hispanic Student Dental Association, mostly because when it was first established, there were only two or three people of color. So it was like, let's combine, let's uh, join forces. But today, we have a number of students who are not just people of color, but students who are interested in the mission, which is to help communities of color and to give them good oral health and do other things in the community. 
All these interest groups are looking at the mission statements of their national organizations and trying to achieve it by doing different activities. The screening at the Head Start program in Meriden is one of those activities that students in our group tend to go out and, and do those screenings to be in the community of color. Those are what some of the interest groups do. Other interest groups like the special needs interest group, they will go and do special Olympics and do screenings and mouth guards and fluoride applications. So there's a lot of interest groups that are looking at the different mission statements and trying to achieve those. So I wanted to end on this question. What are your hopes for the future of dentistry as a whole? Do you believe that enough is being done to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field? And how do you think UConn can best contribute? I, I think we're doing a, a, a great job, but we still have a lot to go. Just being able to get qualified candidates for application, I think it's important. So not just in the supportive nature of the school environment and the academic environment while we're here, but reaching back, going further back into the elementary school level, into the middle school level, to be able to show communities of color that this is a very good option for a career. So I think we need to um, impart on all of our students, not just those of color, that they need to recruit and not just to be able to say, not just to those people who they think can make it through the curriculum and make it through the career, but to everyone and say, do you want to be a dentist? Can you be a dentist? You should be a dentist. So to be able to give them that um, encouragement and the ability to see themselves in that career can help with recruitment. So I still think we have a little bit of, of a ways to go in that direction, but um, I believe people at UConn have that commitment. I know I'm certainly here, and I know the students that I reach and that are part of the interest group have that desire to do the same thing. So I, I think we can achieve that. It's just we need continual resources and continual commitment and continual awareness to not think of, oh, everything's all set now. It never is. We have to continue that work. Yes, and that's exactly why we're having this conversation. So, Dr. Ortega, do you have any final thoughts for today? No, I'm so glad that this is an opportunity to put all of these things to light because too often people forget or they think that somebody else is taking care of it. So I'm glad this, this is just another opportunity. Podcasts are, are new to me in my generation, but I see that it reaches a lot of people. So I want to make sure that people are reached with the messaging and that they know that UConn is doing what they need to do, especially at the health center. That was great. Thank you for doing that, Courtney. And uh, you can find all of our Brave Space coverage at today.uconn.edu, where you can also find uh, some selected highlights of UConn 360. Mm -hmm. Ken, what, uh, what do you have for us this week? Continuing with basketball news, <laughs> last week, Huskies men's basketball coach Dan Hurley announced the hiring of Luke Murray as an assistant coach. Uh, Murray previously was an assistant for Hurley at both Wagner and Rhode Island before going to become an assistant at Xavier and Louisville and establishing a reputation as a tireless and effective recruiter. The Athletic, which is an online sports blog and news operation, named Murray as one of the 40 influential people in college basketball under 40. That's the 40 under 40. And he also was recognized by 247 Sports as one of the top five recruiters in the nation. Murray spent one semester as a student at UConn, and you'll hear a little bit more about that in the piece, before transferring to Fairfield and graduating there in 2007. At a news conference with sports writers who cover the Huskies, Murray was asked what makes a successful recruiter. 
just, I think, a diligence, you know, really being um, dialed into the player that you're recruiting, you know, the, his background, the people that are in his circle, whether that be high school coaches, family members, um, you know, certainly grassroots coaches, teammates, you know, as many different ways as you can kind of familiarize yourself with the prospect and, and his recruiting process and what's important to him. Um, that's something that I, I always try to be as, as thorough as possible uh, in the recruiting process, the evaluation process. Um, and that's something that, you know, Coach Hurley obviously prides himself in as well. And I think the staff here at Connecticut has done an awesome job of, of identifying the right kind of guys that fit the culture of the program. And then certainly, you know, having a really comprehensive understanding of what goes into ultimately getting him to commit. Murray says at a very early age, he became interested in how players are recruited to college, even as he was still playing as a youngster. For many years, the most popular camp for college coaches to visit was the ABCD basketball camp. ABCD stood for Academic Betterment and Career Development. He was a camper there. The ABCD camp was this camp that was run in Teaneck, New Jersey, um, and that, that wasn't far from where I grew up. That was something that I just kind of became aware of as a sixth, seventh, eighth grader. Even though I was playing at my own level, I was always intrigued by the idea of the college coaches coming to recruit the best players in the country. And so that was kind of my first introduction to, to college basketball, you know, aside from obviously watching the games on television. I think that was probably the first time that it really became clear to me that I'd love to do that as a profession, um, you know, whenever my playing days were over. You know, I was playing in AAU tournaments, you know, throughout high school. <laughs> And I would stay and watch the older guys play. So if I was playing in a 15 and under event, I would stay and watch the 16s and 17s play. And I had the Bob Gibbons report sent to my house and I was dialed in on all the different high school guys across the country. And that was just kind of the advent of recruiting information becoming available on the internet. And so I was scouring the country for as much info as I could get watching older guys play. I spent a lot of time in, in Manhattan in New York City watching different high school players play in Catholic League championships and PSAL championships and, and different uh, grassroots organizations. So it's been a love of mine. I'm blessed that I'm able to do it as a profession. Did you do it before you're able to drive or, or I guess you could take public transportation to places? Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I did it before I was able to drive. But again, a lot of times taking the trains and or the bus or getting dropped off, you know, that was just kind of part of it. My Different family members took turns dropping me at different gyms across the tri-state area for a lot of my childhood. While he was at UConn, Murray introduced himself to Tom Moore, who was one of Jim Calhoun's assistant coaches, and he would stop by his office to talk about recruiting players. I graduated from Fairfield, I want to say May or May or April of 2007, and I called Coach Moore to congratulate him on, on being named coach at Quinnipiac, um, as I mentioned, because of our relationship going back a few years prior to that. And he had the Tom Kinshowski report, you know, the scouting report in, in his office. And he was up there with his assistant coach, Sean Doherty, at the time. And he said, hey, can I, can I bounce a couple names off you? So we ended up going through the entire Tom Kinshowski report. And I think what started as me calling him to congratulate him ended in me coming up the next day to interview for the ops job. And uh, I started as the director of operations at Quinnipiac not long after that. As you might expect, when Hurley spoke with him about returning to his staff and joining Moore and Kamani Young, Murray did not have to think too long about his answer. It was a very easy decision for me. Really excited about being here at UConn. You know, my relationship with Coach Hurley means a ton to me. He's a real mentor of mine and, and somebody that I hold in incredibly high regard. Tom and Kamani the same way. You know, I've known each of those guys for close to two decades. Really exciting 
to be a part of this staff and to be around those guys on a daily basis. You know, we have a really good synergy, you know, just personally in terms of the way that we communicate with one another and the respect level that we have. I just love the way that he coaches. I love the way that he inspires a group. I love his perspective. You know, I think he still brings some of that high school mentality in terms of really being invested in the players wholeheartedly and 24-7. I think that that's something that's hard to come by in college basketball. Sometimes you have coaches that are a little bit more inclined to have relationships with their players from three to five when practice is going on. But um, that's not Coach Hurley's way. That's not this coaching staff's way. You know, it's always great to be a part of a program where you really feel like the coach is fully vested in the players. And, and that's what I see here at Connecticut. That's been his history, you know, whether it's at Rhode Island or Wagner or going back to the St. Benedict's days. And if you don't already know, Luke Murray is the son of Bill Murray, who first became known as a member of the original cast of the Not Ready for Primetime Players on Saturday Night Live, for which he won an Emmy Award before acting in films such as Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, Groundhog Day, and winning major awards for Lost in Translation and Rushmore. He also is known as a big sports fan, playing in celebrity golf tournaments and rooting for the teams that his son coaches. Of course, Luke Murray was asked about his father's status as a celebrity. Well, I'm certainly proud of it. You know, I'm definitely proud of my dad and, and his accomplishments. But at the same time, that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with, with me or, or what I'm about on a daily basis. And so, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said those questions aren't somewhat tiresome. I'm sure everybody, for the most part, knows the story. And, uh, you know, I'm just f- kind of focused on, on being the best basketball coach that I can be here at Connecticut and, and hoping that I can help Coach Hurley and the program continue to ascend. Your dad's known to uh, t- attend games that you're involved with. Do you anticipate him being at any, uh, any games at Gamble or Excel Center in the coming years? I'm sure he will. You know, he's a huge fan of Coach Hurley's and, and Coach Moore's. You know, he he's goes back with Coach Moore a long way as well. So I'm sure he'll be excited about um, coming out and, and seeing home games and being around campus a little bit. You know, the Louisville fans gave him a hard time because he had a losing streak for a couple games there. But I tried to explain he was going to like hard games. You know, he would go to the Kentucky game or go to at Florida State. So it wasn't like there were by games that he was showing up to when we were losing. So um, hopefully he can get off to a great start here and uh, kind of reverse the trend a little bit. Well, uh, Luke, Luke seems to have the, the the sense of humor that his father brings to the table, of course. And I guess there's going to be a, a a Bill Murray watch when when the season begins because you never know when he's going to show up. And in fact, Luke grew up in Fairfield County when his father was working in New York. You learn something new every day on New Country 60. That's right. That's why... We cover the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. <laughs> Even the Bill Murray angles. Even the Bill Murray angles. Um, now, uh, for, for Tom's History Corner this week, uh, we've got a, kind of a part two. Oh, yeah. Uh, we talked last time about the, the the effort to save the rock, the spirit rock, the, the graffiti rock, the big rock that people paint <laughs> stuff on. Um, but uh, what we, we didn't talk about is the people behind the campaign to save the rock in particular, one person whose name was Mark Hawthorne who uh, grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, graduated from Stanford high in 1954 and graduated from UConn in 1958 with a bachelor's degree in English. He was the managing editor of the daily campus for his last two years at UConn. And he also published his own magazine called the corkscrew. And I've been able to find nothing else about it. So if you know anything about this magazine or where I could see copies of it, please let me know. Hawthorne, in his capacity as managing editor, led the publicity campaign to save the rock. In the fall of 1957, when this this issue was coming to a head, the Daily Campus would publish daily updates on it, and they they sponsored the Save the Rock campaign, 
was save your pennies for the rock where students would save up money to donate uh, to get the rock actually moved because that was part of the, the, the issue was the cost of moving it was so exorbitant at the time. Uh, and they would have a, a, over the flag on the paper, it would say, you know, save the rock, that kind of thing. So although a lot of people were actually involved in saving the rock, Mark Hawthorne got a lot of the credit because he was sort of organizing the publicity effort and, and making sure that uh, it, it stayed in the forefront of uh, people's imaginations. And we've kind of talked in the past about Tom's History Corner, some of these people who do interesting things at UConn, and then Julie or Ken will say, like, what happened to them? And I'll say, I don't know. Um, <laughs> do you actually know this time? I do know this time. <gasps> it, it's quite a tale. I'm proud of tale. you. That's why we have a part uh, two. After graduating uh, from <laughs> UConn, he uh, went into the Air Force, which was common back then, I believe. In fact, if you were a college student, you had to be an ROTC to some degree in those days because there was a, a draft. Mm. Uh, he became an intelligence officer in the Air Force and got out of the Air Force in 1961 and went to work for the New York Times. Wow. Working on the essentially the real estate desk, like writing up like real estate listings and things. His, his father was an AP reporter, so he had journalism in his blood, and he also, of course, worked for the Daily Campus. And he would end up working at the New York Times from 1961 to the end of 1969, mostly on the rewrite desk, which if you don't know, I think they still do this in some places. They certainly did when I was at the AP, where reporters out in the field, so to speak, will actually gather information and they'll phone it in and then someone puts it in story form. That's the rewrite desk. That's what he did. But he also occasionally had his own stories. And to give you some idea of the kind of journalist he was, this is a lead of his lead paragraph from one of his very few byline stories to make page one of the New York Times. Quote, A 17-year-old boy chased his pet squirrel up a tree in Washington Square Park yesterday afternoon, touching off a series of incidents in which 22 persons were arrested and eight persons, including five policemen, were injured. It was like that kind of, like he was sort of, he liked the quirky, strange slice of life things, as you'd expect from someone who was invested in saving the rock. Saving the rock, right? As the 60s wore on, though, he started to get more and more interested in kind of esoteric philosophies and uh one day on the rewrite disc he was sitting next to his friend fellow rewrite uh, desk and times reporter michael kaufman and mark hawthorne handed kaufman a note that said i am filled up with words and from that point on he decided to stop speaking entirely oh okay uh, this is uh from a, from a michael kaufman piece in 1991 looking back on this quote as best as i can understand it he had come to believe that dialogue, understanding, or trust between people can only be established if they admit what separates them, or as he put it, why they hate each other. Negative emotions, he insisted, are true and real, while positive feelings are intrinsically hypocritical. In one letter I received a decade ago, he asked me point blank why I hated him. So he stopped speaking for a period of perhaps years and was fired from the New York Times. Because <laughs> you can't really do your job if you're not talking, I guess. Ha- had a big argument with him in the newsroom after this and said, are you seriously going to stop speaking? And he would just sort of nod yes, and then he, he got kicked Oh, that would drive fired. me insane. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he, was, uh, he was also married and had, I, I believe, two daughters. So um, a few years later, he turns up in Berkeley. Uh, early 70s, turns up in Berkeley. And he had started speaking again, but all he would say was, I hate you to people. Uh, and apparently he said it sort of <laughs> jovially, I guess. He huh. became known He became known as the hate man. He lived in People's Park, which was, um, you can Google it. It was the, 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 a very contentious thing in the history of the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, I think there were people actually who were killed there in a, riots in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and it's, it's become the sort of symbol of that era and that, that kind of that generation. A lot of People's Parks showed up on college campuses, mm. including the University of Bridgeport during that time. We just, it was a place to protest. Yeah, it was sort of like a, like a, almost like a, a reclaimed space for, you know, for activities like that. Um, 
and uh, he, he that's where he lived. He, he didn't have a home. Uh, he would organize drum circles. He apparently did not do any drugs or drink alcohol, although he, he chain-smoked Virginia Slims. Years and years later, Michael Kaufman, his former friend of the New York Times, caught up with him and went out to visit him and said he, you know, he just kind of talked about how he had discovered this philosophy of life. Mark Hawthorne said, everybody has their own rhythm and I've found mine. <laughs> and he became kind of a beloved local character in Berkeley, like happily waving to people and saying, I hate you. And uh, Kaufman, during the course of their interview, they were sitting on a park bench and like students were walking to class and they would wave at Mark Hawthorne and say, I hate you. And he'd say, I hate you. <laughs> so it was this kind of odd, very odd character. Um, and he died in, in April uh, 2017 at the age of 80. Wow. So yeah, that's the... Uh, that's the Mark Hawthorne. Story. That's really quite interesting. There are a lot of strange people in newsrooms. That's certainly true. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> Best kind so, of yeah, people, so th- but wow. So when when whenever you're painting the rock, UConn students or anyone who paints the rock, because it's free to paint for anybody, just uh, spare a thought for for Mark Hawthorne, the hate man. Yeah, that adds a whole new layer. <laughs> layer like there's Ayo. millions of layers of paint on it. That adds <laughs> yeah. a whole new layer to the rock story, the rock history. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Um, Thanks for finding someone after they left UConn and <laughs> yeah, I know. Finally doing satisfy my curiosity for once. <laughs> uh, but I, I would uh, like to renew my request. If anyone knows where I can find, uh, uh, probably just Graham. If anyone listening to this, it might be Graham would know. If, if oh, the magazine that, that he find. did. Yeah, the corkscrew. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder it. what uh, you know who is preaching this this kind of ideology that he ended up subscribing to where did he find it and read about it that everyone just hates each other (laughs) yeah philosophy class i guess i didn't learn that in philosophy class but i I don't know at the rewrite desk of the new york times maybe after a while you're like this is (laughs) positivity is false only negativity is real interesting sounds kind of like your philosophy of life hey (laughs) you're a little you're a little cynical well, that's, I guess that's true. And I, and I used to work at a rewrite desk. So there hey, you go. similarities. There's a lot of old newspaper movies where the, the guy calls in on the uh, payphone and says, get me yep. rewrite. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I did that many a time. I did that for an entire summer in the city of New Orleans for the AP. I, I, I never rewrite. wanted to call in a story. I'm, I'm very, like, I have to be the person to put it in the writing. I was very scared to have to do things like that when I was a reporter. I always, when I would have to call in a story, I'd always get nervous that like I, I would, wouldn't have details that the rewrite person would ask for. Yeah. But uh, it was nice being the rewrite person because I could say like, well, what, wait, what? Yeah. Did anyone did anyone say this? Did you talk to a sea captain? <laughs> I once had to ask that. <laughs> did you? Yeah, we had to get a comment from a sea captain for some reason. So was, all these reporters were calling in and I was like, I, I'm sorry about this, but did you talk to a sea captain today? I, I need a sea captain, guys. I need a You're sea captain. You're not coming through on the sea captain front. The, the closest I came to, to rewrite was, is, was, was when I was at the Hartford Current doing my uh, internship there. And I had to take dictation from Jack Zaidman, the veteran political reporter who was covering the Republican National Convention at the time. And he was dictating uh, his story which largely was about how he was holding Pat Nixon's hand <laughs> while he was doing this story. Okay. As I said, we had a lot of strange people mm-hmm. in the newsroom. True. True. Well, uh, that's, um, that's it. We're for, also strange we're people. We're also pretty strange Let's end people. it that way. Yeah. And, and We talk on the radio, right? This is a right? place for strange people. It's your, it is. All strange people are welcome. Thank you for joining us again this week. Uh, we'll be coming to you in another fortnight. But then, then there's going to be a long layoff. Because we're going on hiatus for the summer. Yeah. Um, 
So store up your your Yukon 360 memories now, because um, <laughs> after next fortnight, you're going to have to wait a little while. We'll have more details next time we, uh, when we're, uh, we we're winterizing the place, as it were, or summerizing. <laughs> I guess. Um, Julie, is there anything you would like to plug or tell people out there? Yeah, the latest Yukon Health Journal, which is very beautiful, if I do say so. I had nothing to do with making it look beautiful. Is at healthjournal.yukon.edu. There's gorgeous art and a really nice feature story about the shift to telemedicine for the psychiatrists at UConn Health and how successful they were as the pandemic kind of forced them into this new world and what what lessons they've learned doing and telemedicine. I so believe that out. by the time that people are listening to this, you can go to UConn today and you can find that story as well. Uh, I think you can, yeah. Ken, how about you? Well, I'm, I'm contemplating uh, to celebrate Bob Dylan's 80th birthday on on the Good Music Show when it comes up in a couple of weeks. I have to figure that out if I'm going to do that. We'll see. Sounds like a good plan. But in the meantime, you can tune in at 91.7 WHUS in stores. You can sound alternative streaming online at whus.org on Saturday nights in prime time, 8 to 11 p.m. Excellent. And I'm at TJ Breen on Twitter or at main underscore old. I'll post some pictures of the Battle of the Rock. And in the, the spirit of Mark Hawthorne signing off this week by saying, I hate you. No, I love you. Each and every one of you, dear listeners. <laughs> we'll uh, meet back here in two weeks.